Whether forces at peace or actively engaged, the business of keeping the Army equipped, fed, and fueled never really ends. At the Association of the U.S. Army Conference earlier this week, I caught up with the commander of the Army Sustainment Command, Major General David Wilson. Of course, Army Material Command, if a soldier drives it, flies it, eats it, shoots it, or communicates with it, Army Material Command provides it. Army Sustainment Command is a command that uh, is really AMC's execution arm for their material enterprise operations, and they leverage the national level provided capabilities. Our life cycle management commands, TACOM, AMCOM, CECOM, JMC, and we introduce those capabilities at the operational, tactical, and strategic levels of sustainment uh, across the globe, really. And what are the processes that make that happen? That is to say you're not an acquisition type of command, or are you that also? That, not an acquisition right. type of command, but we do leverage the acquisition uh, community to help us do everything from uh, log cap uh, to some of the other contracting activities that go on with regards to our installation logistics mission. Army Sustainment Command also has responsibility for 74 uh, logistics readiness centers across uh, all of our installations, where we provide installation logistics support. And so that's a key aspect, one key aspect of what the command does. The other piece is Army prepositioned stocks. The APS stocks that are around the uh, globe, Army Sustainment Command manages those stocks uh, as well on behalf of uh, Army Material Command in the Army. And that's worldwide. And that's worldwide. That's globally. Everything from things that are setting on the ground in our various combatant commands area of responsibility to include the sets that are floating out uh, in the various parts of the world, a part of ships. And that includes ordnance also? Uh, that's right. Uh, munitions and and. Uh, operational project stocks as well as uh, unit equipment sets that our formations might be required to fall on in during during competition uh, crisis. So in that mission, then, there is a readiness kind of component That's that right. drives it, and also the sustainment if there is an ongoing operation that you're feeding it and keeping it going. A- absolutely. Our jobs make sure that um, that the equipment is ready. Uh, when when called or drawn upon, just like we've done in the European theater and in support of our allies there when we sent uh, a unit over from the, uh, one of our divisions to conduct training, that unit drew the equipment sets in Europe and, you know, in record time moved out of their assembly areas and was able to begin starting the training of our partners and allies in that space. Really the worst thing that can happen in an Army situation is to run out of stuff. That's right. Got it. Okay. One of the things that we do is we ensure that the stuff is ready. You know, Muhammad Ali said you don't have to get ready when you stay ready. And a big part of what we're doing is making sure that the capability stays ready. Uh, so when it's called upon, we can deliver at the speed of war versus the speed of bureaucracy. Got it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And give us a sense of the people, uniforms, civilian, yes. contractor uh, support, and a- where are they a- all? Absolutely. My headquarters is um, uh, and command is primarily uh, majority department of the Army civilians. Uh, that, that really makes up two-thirds of the organization. One-third of it is uh, uniform and military personnel. And so uh, this this. This vast, and we do it with also support of our contract workforce that, you know, we leverage through the uh, contracting community and ensure that we can deliver the capability uh, to those at the tip of the spear. We're speaking with Major General David Wilson, commander of Army Sustainment Command. And what are your top 
strategic initiatives right now? What are you doing to advance the whole yeah, operational right. capability of the of the command? Right now, one of the things is really the dynamic employment of Army pre-position stocks, uh, looking at where we have capability at across the globe, ensuring that that capability uh, is not just maintained, but it's modernized uh, to meet uh, our future requirements in the various theaters uh, of our combatant commanders. So that must be a challenge because you want things to be fresh. I mean, ordnance dry, you know, to put it That's the right. old-fashioned way, and food to be edible. But yet you don't want to have a waste and just That's preposition right. things and then throw yes. them out in two years. How well, does that all work? Well, there's, there's good ways in which we do that from rotating of stocks. So there are stocks that we can leverage during exercises. When units are conducting exercise, the older stocks we might rotate out and then replace them with newer stocks so that we don't have things in the theaters uh, that may uh, specifically um, uh, shelf life expires and then they become non-usable. So so we have a whole team that's really dedicated on looking at uh, the shelf life of things and modernization and, and try to make sure that we strike the right balance. And where we can use, um, you know, those exercises as opportunities to... Um, you know, really replace things that may be end of life, that's a win because the units then uh, can leverage the capability forward and we're not worrying about flying things from the continental United States in the zone and the different places where we may have capability on the ground. Sure, and how has the tempo changed in the post-Afghanistan era where the Army is not really as engaged as it was around the world? <laughs> well, I can tell you for Army Sustainment Command, that's not... The case because with us having the responsibility for installation logistics on 74 installations, having brigades in each one of the combatant commanders' area of responsibilities, providing AMC's material enterprise support, our pace hasn't slowed down within Army Material Command or Army Sustainment Command for that matter. It has the mix of what's moving around and being modernized and sustained. Has that changed at all? Uh, not the mix of what's being uh, uh, sustained. I think the pace of what's going to happen with modernization will have to change. The uh, dynamic look at how we put things in certain theaters, you know, as, of course, the Pacific's a maritime-dominated theater, and where we put things on the ground in the Pacific will have to be uh, things that will enable the speed of assembly, extend the operational reach of our supported commander, and give them the measure of endurance that they need so that we preserve uh, the commander's freedom of action so that they can conduct operations at their own time and, and choosing. I often tell people, if the maneuver forces is the fist doing the strike and logistics is the muscle that enables the fist to strike. And in recent years, the Army has gotten a little bit more specialized with respect to operating in heat types of climates and now, you know, more recently in cold climates as the Arctic becomes more strategically important. So that must affect how you look at at the world in terms oh, yes. of sustainment, as, as heat a, versus cold. Absolutely. As a, as a logistician, we have to look at all of the requirements. You know, a good logistician looks at requirements, takes the capabilities that are available, sources them, and where there are shortfalls, that's where the creative action and juices start to flow and how we solve those typical problems. So we, we definitely do so because we know that uh, there's equipment that's required to operate in different environments. And so decisions that are made on where we stock, store, issue or deliver those capabilities based on the uh, environments that the Army is going to operate in. That's full well in the calculus and the logistics community before any operation commences. Logistics can't be the afterthought. It has to be the forethought. I often tell sure. my maneuver peers 
uh, they need to channel to in a U.S. grant. You know, General Grant was a master in logistics, and that's what uh, gave him a great a- advantage. There's a saying that amateurs study tactics, but professionals study logistics. And so we try to make sure that uh, our, our, our core across the board, when it, as it pertains to logistics, we're doing the things that allow us to meet our uh, commander's requirements. Yeah, you don't want to be That's able right. to be outrun by the people on That's the right. front, basically. That's right. And I just wanted to talk about refurbishment for a moment. On this floor, everything is shiny. There's a tank across from where we're talking, and the poor guy keeps polishing it as people put their fingerprints all over it. But that's brand new and shiny like everything else. The engine's down the way. You deal with stuff after it's kind of had some road use. That's right. What, what's going on there? Well, right there, I, I think it's a comprehensive look. So when you start talking about maintaining of equipment, uh, the stream of it starts really down at the operator and soldier level that's operating it. Pride and ownership of the piece of equipment for the foremost is what our soldiers do each and every day out in the field. And they make sure they maintain uh, that capability in the Army. The Army has over uh, 97,000 ordnance professionals. That's primarily maintainers that turn wrenches on stuff and beautify equipment. And they, that, those individuals, along with the, the operators, they do a phenomenal job and make sure that our, our, our capability stays ready each and every day. Now, when it exceeds their ability... Uh, to maintain them, i.e., there's some problem in the supply system downstream or the maintenance repair is at the level in which Army Material Command touches them, which is sustainment maintenance level at the depot level. That's where we get involved and we then, uh, you know, operate and maintain uh, the equipment and then return back to the field or return back in the stocks for issuing for subsequent requirements. Does it ever get down to the detail of, say, you might need to re-tap a threaded opening because it's worn out? Absolutely. And that capability actually happens down at the tip of the spear. Our Army maintenance doctrine is about repairing and fixing far forward, not dragging things to the rear. Got it. A commander can't afford to have everything brought back out of theater. He has to be able to fight forward, and that's what our maintainers enable our commanders in the field to do. I'd like to see the torque wrench on down there on one of those things. That, that's a big one, isn't it? Yes. Yes, there's a, there's a lot, of, lot of capability uh, that's out there that's pretty remarkable that our maintainers are dealing with today. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, sir. Good meet. Major General David Wilson is commander of the Army Sustainment Command. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. 
Shane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, 
I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I 
had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.